the way I've described it to people, frankly, is it's like a super PAC. Stuart Mandel is editor-in-chief for college football at The Athletic, an online sports news outlet with 1.2 million subscribers. When NIL went into effect last summer, people assumed these players would be signing with companies. But what has sprouted up very quickly are these third-party groups of donors who are, without putting it in writing, recruiting these players to their school by offering them these large sums of NIL money. Stuart, you recently broke a story about a high school football recruit who signed a name, image, and likeness package that could be worth more than $8 million by the end of his junior year. This is believed to be the largest NIL deal by a non-professional athlete to date. It would pay him $350,000 almost immediately before he even gets to college, and then $2 million per year from there out. But if these NIL collectives are basically pooling money with the aim of creating a special recruiting fund, I don't know. That sure seems like a blatant violation of the NCAA's rules against using NIL as inducement. Oh, it is. It is. And, and I think that, you know, those of us that cover this work closely, we knew that boosters would try to use NIL to wield influence in recruiting. I think what caught us off guard were two things, how efficient and organized these collectives are, and then, you know, the amounts of money involved. To be clear, NCAA rules prohibit giving a, a player money to come to a certain school, but the contract I reviewed never mentioned the school explicitly says this is not an inducement to come to a certain school. You know, we would assume those discussions took place, but they were smart enough not to put them in writing. Swung on and missed. Rubber goes, and the throw is online. Coleman can't get the one-handed rebound. And Nick Stable is saving. No! Right through This is Uncommon Law from the Bloomberg Industry Group. I'm Adam Allington. This is the second episode in our two-part series exploring the legal questions in play now that college sports allows athletes to be paid for the use of their name, image, and likeness. So, Stuart, could you just explain who showed you this contract and what were the parameters for you being allowed to see it and report on it? There's a lawyer in Southern California named Mike Caspino who has been um, reviewing contracts for, he said at that time, about 30 athletes, high school athletes going to college and allowed me to take a look at the contract as long as we kept the player and the school collective that he signed with anonymous. And yeah, it could pay the player up to $8 million if he stays through his junior year of college. But in return, he signs away exclusive rights to his name, image, and likeness. As you've pointed out, NIL deals can't be linked to a specific school. Uh, in this case, since the collective owns the recruit's NIL rights, I guess in theory that could dissuade him from transferring since he wouldn't be able to broker any new deals. But he still gets the $8 million, right? I'm sure right now a lot of the lawyers in our audience are just shaking their heads that anyone would put this much money on the line with what seems like almost zero protections. It's a lot different than when NIL went into effect last summer. People assumed these players would be signing with companies. So, you know, let's say after a year at that school, he decides he wants to transfer to Ohio State. The problem is he wouldn't be able to make any NIL deals at Ohio State. In some ways, that seems like it would be a deterrent. Um, who knows? I mean, there's so many possible 
ways this could play out. Obviously, they're betting that the five-star quarterback turns into a superstar for their school and that this will all be worth it. What if he gets seriously injured? What if he just doesn't? I mean, half of the five-star quarterbacks don't actually pan out. Right. And it also sets up potential scenarios where the coach and the collective may not see eye to eye, which I guess that in itself isn't anything new. But even if the coach still has final say on recruiting questions, it sure seems like this new arrangement gives a lot more leverage to the boosters if they're the ones controlling how much money goes into the NIL fund to begin with. That's a fascinating dynamic to this. You know, I think that by law they are by rule, they are not allowed to, this group is not allowed to coordinate in any way with the coaching staff, right? But it's no secret you can go on 24-7 or Rivals and see exactly who each school's offered and who they're going after. But sometimes coaches make their own evaluations and they're different than what the recruiting rankings say. So who wins in that you know situation? Because the coach is going to be reliant on this outside party to make a good NIL package if they're going to win the recruit over. That's why I think a lot of people don't think that this model is sustainable. There's an arms race right now and everybody doesn't want to be left behind and they're racing to do these things. And the question is in a couple of years, will deals like this turn out to be you know, a one-time thing. And then we learned, we made our, we made a mistake. We learned from our mistake and we decided not to do it again. We're closing in on one year since the Supreme Court issued its landmark decision in NCAA versus Alston, which opened the door for states to pass their own NIL laws and ultimately forced the NCAA to adopt its current NIL guidelines, which many coaches and administrators complain were basically designed to be broken. In fact, the phrase that you constantly hear is the old trope about the Wild West, which is what lawyers always say in cases where the law hasn't caught up with the current practice. No one says it's a Wild West when the coaches are free to move all over the country to maximize their incomes and their compensation. No one says it's the Wild West when you or I you know, maximize our compensation and find whatever value we're entitled to. Jeffrey Kessler is a longtime antitrust and sports law attorney with Winston and Strawn. He also led the plaintiff's team in NCAA versus Alston and argued that case before the Supreme Court. But as impactful as Alston was, Kessler's also leading a new case slowly advancing in federal court that may have an even bigger impact on the future of the NCAA. Jeff, it's nice to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me. Wow. So you're definitely someone who's had, let's say, a front row seat in the legal battle over compensation for college athletes. This new case you're working on is House versus NCAA, which is a class action lawsuit named after Grant House, an Arizona State swimmer, as well as other college athletes who are seeking a share of television and other revenues including money that they would have received in payments for the use of their name, image, and likeness over the past four years. So where does the House case currently stand? So it's in the same court that had the Austin case. It's in it's the Northern District of California before Judge Wilkin, which is in uh, Oakland. And we expect this year to have motions to certify the classes, which is a legal procedure that you have to get the courts to find that it's appropriate to treat this as a class action. We're going forward with depositions of various uh, witnesses and getting documents. 
from the NCAA. Uh, and I expect that we will get probably to a trial in 2023. Uh, and, um, you know, if we succeed in-house, we will recover damages for the athletes who were restricted the past four years from when the case was filed. Uh, and we also will get an injunction, like we did in the Alston case, which will take the NCAA out of the business of having these types of NIL restrictions in the future. So we'll see what happens. Stay tuned. When you say NIL restrictions, you're talking about the current NCAA guidelines that ban things like recruiting inducement, pay for play, quid pro quo, anything that would otherwise be just fine if it were not in the context of college athletics, right? So my belief is the NCAA should not have any rules on compensation or benefits and they should leave that to the individual conferences. I think to the extent the NCAA still has some, quote, guidance, it's basically illegal, and we are challenging that in the House litigation that we now have pending. Amazing. So all the hand-wringing about slush funds and inducements, you're saying it's all totally legal. So what would you say to the concerns that some have raised that if college sports were to become a completely free and open market, it might disadvantage players in the non-revenue sports or give recruiting advantages to certain schools and conferences? So let me talk about that. You know, no one expects that the athletes on schools in the Patriot League Sorry to interrupt just quickly. The Patriot League, for people who don't know, is an athletic conference, mostly in the Northeast. Colleges like Holy Cross, Colgate, Bucknell, uh, good schools, but not typically what you think of as sports powerhouses. So, yeah. So, yeah, I think they generate negative or no revenues would have the same compensation system as the SEC, where every one of the schools is earning in excess of $100 million in revenues a year from their athletes. You know, one set of schools are engaged in a very large business. And other schools, in Division Three, for example, it's more like extracurricular activities. And they're not the same. And by allowing individual conferences to regulate, we get to the correct economic outcome where the athletes who generate huge revenues get to partake in those revenues. I mean, I see what you're saying. Obviously, college sports is a multi-billion dollar business. You've got your haves and your have-nots in other parts of the economy. But, you know, many of these athletic programs don't fall into the clearly delineated examples you gave of the SEC or the Patriot League. Even among the top-tier conferences like the Big Ten or the Pac-12, there are schools who could face significant disadvantages in a completely free market. So doesn't the NCAA have some kind of mandate to protect that competitive balance, just from like a product viability standpoint, if nothing else? So first of all, no one gave the NCAA any mandate to regulate competition. The NCA assumed that mandate privately because it's in the economic interest of economic cartels to try to restrict competition. The mandate they were given by President Theodore Roosevelt 
was to set rules of the game so to protect the safety of athletes in college football. Harvard in dark helmets kicks off to Yale wearing white headgear at New Haven as the traditional rivals meet in the climax game of the Big Three season. It's funny, Jeffrey, that you should bring that up because people often think of football today as being super violent. But back in the early 1900s, people were literally dying by the dozens. People were calling for the sport to be banned. That's when Roosevelt stepped in and basically told the schools to reform the game, make it safer or else. But you're saying that none of that had anything to do with competition, right? Then or now. There is no competitive balance in Division I basketball. There is no competitive balance in FBS football. There actually is no competitive balance in any of the Division I sports. So what are we talking about? You know, there are dramatic differences in the resources and the level of success between these programs. That will not change if the athletes can get compensated or the athletes cannot get compensated. The only difference is in whether that wealth is going to get shared with the athletes who generate these monies. So if college sports were to become a free market, that might make it easier for coaches to cut players, rescind scholarships, or maybe push schools to cut certain sports altogether. So is any of that an area of potential concern? So I would say I have no problem with letting the commercial arrangements develop as it's supposed to do it. And if someone wants to say that, well, uh, if you if you stop playing the sport, I'm no longer going to give you the rights. Or if you transfer to another school, I'm no longer going to pay you. I, I would have no objection to that commercially. And I don't think there's any basis, you know, to restrict it. Uh, and so it's too soon to know, but I think there'll be some reallocations. You know, if the athletes can get greater compensation and benefits, for example, you know, the weight coaches at Alabama, I'm sorry to say, might not be able to earn $550,000 each year, which is more than the president of the university earns. Uh, so there may be some allocations like that. Jeffrey Kessler, he's co-executive chairman at Winston and Strawn and is considered among the world's leading sports and antitrust lawyers. It's hard not to feel nostalgic about sports. That noble idea of the student athlete out there to win one for the Gipper I think it's also justifiable to worry that allowing sports to become a business, just like anything else, might ruin everything that made it great to begin with. Skeptics will say that the tipping point about money in college sports was already crossed many decades ago. And even before that time, the idea that big-time college athletes were in school to do anything but play sports was a charade at best. But Obscured behind the larger philosophical debate about paying college athletes is, I think, a very important question about the role of education in the college experience and what might be lost if athletes become employees. Echo Yanka is a professor at the Cardozo School of Law in New York City, 
and he recently co-authored a story about NIL and college sports for the Paragraph website. Hi, Echo. It's nice to talk to you again. Thank you for having me. It's good to be in conversation. As I said, you co-authored an article with Pat Ford from Sports Illustrated, the title of which was, Is NIL Destroying College Sports? So was that a case of the editors just putting a little extra juice on the title? Or do you really think that college sports is at a kind of life and death crossroads? Well, you know, titles may be a little bit more hyperbolic than we sometimes feel. Um, Look, I think the question is important, and it's a hard question because it's so embedded in the question of whether athletes should be paid flatly. And I think critics of our current system are right about the problems. I just think they're wrong about the solutions. And what I wrote about NIL in particular was, look, I think NIL is not exactly the same as athletes getting paid. The question is, how close does it come to it? And how easily is it made to be just payroll rather than endorsements? And so I'm trying to keep an open mind and I'm willing to learn. But I I suppose I maintain the worries that most people think are either too quaint or that the uh, end game is too inevitable. So just to clarify, are you saying that paying college athletes is a bad idea, period, Or is it just that NIL is the wrong way to go about it? I do think there's something special about amateurism, right? I think, um, or at least if not amateurism as such, I think it's obvious that there's something special about this being related to our college teams. You know, it's easy to make fun of, but I think people really care in some sense that these are students who walk the same halls you did and are taking some of the classes you took. Maybe you'll share a professor, and maybe they only care in an abstract way. But it's worth noting, for example, minor league teams that are, frankly, much better players than, you know, the vast majority of college teams don't have anywhere near the draw that college teams do, right? But my real concern is not just the romance of amateurism. It's that If college athletes are being exploited, it's because we promised them an education in exchange for all the work of athletics, the same way we might think of a music major or a theater major, right? I mean, those things aren't just math and science, but they're part of the excellence of an education. And that's what we promised these young people. And then the pressure and the money of big time sports just makes a mockery of that. And so my concern is not just keeping the purity of amateurism. It's that the exploitation doesn't go away just by paying a little extra money if what we're robbing these young people of is the true opportunity to get an education. Well, again, I guess the cynical response to that answer would be to say that even prior to NIL, the academic part of college athletics was secondary. But if I understand your point, You're just saying that paying athletes now doesn't end that bait-and-switch process. And in fact, it might actually exacerbate it and push education even more to the side. That's exactly right. I mean, it's an odd belief that if the problem is that sports already overly dominates their life, that if we pay them to be professional employees, that somehow that will end the <laughs> that'll end the dominance of sport. I mean, it will not make them more student athletes. It'll make them less student athletes. It'll make it very clear, you know. Look, you're here to play sports. We're paying you for it. Don't let school get in the way. And by the way, let's be clear, 
right? If that's the system we build, it's also true that when you break your leg, kid, you know, too bad. If you're not performing, you got replaced by the freshman. So there goes your salary. And you know what? We don't have to be Pollyannish about it. A lot of the marketplace works like that. If somebody beats you out in the open market and you lose your job, so be it. Those are all reasons to set up a private minor league system. And I know a lot of people roll their eyes and say, well, that's all pie in the sky. But the real question is, if we're going to change the system, if we're going to reimagine everything, why should we reimagine everything to make the current system more corrosive rather than imagine a healthier system that separates the two? Echo Yanka is a law professor at the Cardozo School of Law in New York City. If you'd like to read his article about NIL and college sports, we'll provide a link in our show notes. Regardless of whether you believe NIL is good or bad for athletes, whether it represents the Wild West or Pandora's box or whatever metaphor you want to reach for, its more accurate description may be more akin to something like an evolutionary step that ultimately redefines the relationship between schools and athletes. These memos that I'm issuing are really a means to educate workers, employers, unions, advocates, and frankly, the public writ large about the rights and obligations under the National Labor Relations Act. This is Jennifer Abruzzo. She's the general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board, which is an independent federal agency charged with protecting the rights of employees. Last September, Abruzzo released a remarkable memo in which she stated her belief that certain college athletes qualified as employees under the National Labor Relations Act. Here she is speaking on the Between the Lines podcast just after the memo was released. I wanted to reinstate and update that memo to reflect the position that we had already taken in 2017, which I felt was bolstered by events that occurred since then, including the Supreme Court decision in NCAA versus Alston, which said that college sports is a profit-making enterprise and rejected the notion of amateurism, making them much more akin to professional football players who are you know, clearly statutory employees. The memo, if adopted by the full NLRB, could have far-reaching consequences for colleges and universities, including granting athletes the right to form labor unions to negotiate wages and other conditions of employment. Joining me to discuss the memo's significance is Audrey Anderson. She's former general counsel of Vanderbilt University and now serves as chair of the Higher Education Practice Group at Bass, Barry & Sims. Audrey, it's so nice to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to be here, Adam. So, Audrey, was there anything in that clip from Jennifer Abruzzo that jumped out at you? Well, on the one hand, I was not horribly surprised by it because the main point of the memo is to just reinstate a memorandum that had been in place in 2017, saying, I, the general counsel of the NLRB, consider certain student-athletes to be employees. Now, that this memo goes a little farther, and I was a little surprised at the aggressiveness of the tone of this memo and the statement that anyone who calls students who play sports at colleges and universities, if you call those people student-athletes like everyone does, 
you may be violating the National Labor Relations Act. That to me was pretty far out. The other thing that I found interesting in it was how the general counsel Abruzzo plucked out of Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence in the Alston case, his kind of throwaway line of, well, one way college athletes could get compensation would be through collective bargaining. I'm not sure, but I would imagine that when Justice Kavanaugh wrote that line, he was not thinking about the analysis one has to do under the National Labor Relations Act to determine whether or not someone is an employee or all the consequences of that determination when you apply it to college athletics. He was just kind of pulling things out of the air. And now the general counsel of the NLRB is kind of saying, look, Justice Kavanaugh thinks they're their employees. As you said, the document also strongly rejects the student-athlete moniker, a label many claim was originally designed by the NCAA as a way to help schools avoid claims brought by athletes, somewhat similar to what we've seen play out in the gig economy with Uber and Lyft drivers being labeled as contractors instead of employees. So is Abruzzo implying that all college athletes meet the statutory definition of employees? At least some of them, let's be clear, not all. So student athletes that are like the football players at Northwestern University. Right. Just to jump in and clarify, Abruzzo's argument is based on a prior case where the NLRB denied a petition from Northwestern University football players seeking the right to unionize. So what are the criteria by which Abruzzo concludes that those Northwestern players did, in fact, meet the statutory definition of an employee? So at least they have to be controlled for a large part of their day by the university. I think the interesting question will be to what extent is the um, factor of bringing in revenue for the university important? Because if it's important for the employee designation that a college player is bringing in net revenue, then there will be very few who actually can be classified as employees. We'll be looking at football only at some universities, men's basketball only at some universities, and maybe one or two universities with women's basketball, if what you're really looking at is a net positive, which is what the general counsel looked at for the Northwestern football players. As I understand it, Abruzzo's memo does not, on its own, convert college athletes into employees, nor does she have a vote on the five-member NLRB board. So what, if anything, are the implications of this memo on the ground? So all it means on the ground, Adam, is that this is the position that the NLRB is going to take in prosecuting cases. It doesn't mean that this is what the law is. So um, it means that you're going to lose before the NLRB at the administrative level if you want to say that a college athlete is not an employee if they're like a Northwestern football player. But you can take those findings to court, and then courts get to make an independent determination. Since the memo's release, two advocacy groups representing college athletes have filed unfair labor petitions with the board. But as I understand it, the NLRB's jurisdiction only covers private companies or institutions, which, of course, many colleges and universities are not. 
Right. Well, and I think the other thing I should have mentioned at the top when you asked me whether anything was surprising, it was that um, General Counsel Abruzzo also said that she thinks that the NCAA could be found to be an employer of the student athletes. And that's a really interesting point and would be a big step that, that no court has ever found. Oh, okay. So if I'm connecting the dots correctly, the NCAA itself isn't a public institution. So therefore, all athletic programs that are members of the NCAA could, in theory, fall under the jurisdiction of the NLRB. Exactly. That's the bigger deal for her saying, oh, I think the NCAA is an employer. Now the athletes at at Alabama can also unionize. So that's the big deal for why when she says it could be employees of the conferences, it could be employees of the NCAA, she's just opening the field to a whole lot more players. The process for considering these cases is a long one. The NLRB has to investigate the filings, request information. If a complaint is issued, a hearing is then scheduled before an administrative law judge who ultimately decides the case. But if the court does agree that college athletes can be considered employees, the changes would be enormous. I mean, any number of wage and tax implications, questions about health care and workman's comp. Uh, Can coaches just fire players now? I mean, the list goes on. Right. And then then you'll also have the question of does Title VII, does it just do this discrimination laws under Title VII that apply to employees? Is that what we think about now when we're thinking about these student athletes? Or do we look at Title IX, which is just kind of a hot topic in general? And right now the Department of Education says Title IX applies to everybody at universities, employees, and students. Title IX, of course, is the law which protects people from sex discrimination in education programs or activities, which historically has been a huge factor in the development of women's collegiate sports. Right, right. Let's say um, there's a determination that your men's football team are the only college players that have collective bargaining rights. So they bargain with the university and they get um, the University says, yeah, we're going to give you health insurance and um, we're going to give you better dormitories and we're going to improve your practice facilities and all that. Well, now the university has to provide some of those benefits to their female student athletes as well. So even though their female student athletes don't have the right to collectively bargain, those female student athletes are going to get those same benefits or else the university will be out of compliance with Title IX. Audrey Anderson chairs the Higher Education Practice Group for the law firm of Bass, Barry & Sims. Audrey, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure, Adam. Thank you. So we've put a lot of questions on the table over these past two episodes. The Supreme Court's Alston ruling and the subsequent implementation of name, image, and likeness rules has produced a kind of perfect storm to rethink college sports for the next 100 years. So, Stuart Mandel, I just wanted to ask, I mean, how should we feel about the way things stand right now? Let's start with the criticisms, I guess. Do you agree with the idea that NIL is providing cover for recruiting violations? 
Yeah, I mean, there's no, again, there's no regulation. There's no, there's nobody deciding what fair market value is. How many autographs do you have to sign that's equivalent to $8 million? And that's what's got people on the ground so frustrated because they know this is being abused and not just in this one case. You know, what NIL was set up to be, and by the way, there are thousands and thousands of athletes who are making legitimate NIL deals with companies, with brands. Um, you saw Adidas recently announced they're going to do an NIL program for all athletes at Adidas-sponsored schools. The St. Peter's basketball player who got a deal with Buffalo Wild Wings, you know, that's that's what this was intended for. But there are this this small minority, but very high profile, that are abusing it. And yeah, come here and, and make all this money for quote-unquote NIL, but it's really just a slush fund. Um, NIL is the is the guys to do it under. For all of the hand-wringing about multi-million dollar NIL deals or recruiting slush funds, I wonder, Stuart, if you think the real story of NIL might be about the thousands of athletes who are benefiting at a much smaller scale, maybe earning just enough to cover the cost of books or a free gym membership, things like that. Yeah, that's what I try to tell people. I know... I don't know, it's, it's not easy to hear because the fans, for most college football fans, all they care about is how this is impacting my team's recruiting and are my rivals, you know, getting an advantage over my team and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, the amount of athletes who are caught up in that is so small compared to thousands of athletes who most people have never heard of who can make some spending money now. Um, you know, Instagram posts that make a few thousand dollars that any other college student is allowed to do. That's what this was intended for. And that's, and it's happened. It's exactly what's played out. Where I don't think you're ever gonna go back to is that money's not a part of recruiting. It's just that Pandora's box has been opened and there's no going back. Stuart Mandel, he's the editor-in-chief for college football at The Athletic. He's also co-host of the Audible podcast. In case you missed the first episode in this series about the legal implications of name, image, and likeness in college sports, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen. This episode was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with editor Greg Henderson and Josh Block, the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Additional thanks to Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program and host of the Between the Lines podcast for letting us use portions of his interview with Jennifer Abruzzo. Music for this episode was composed by Poddington Bear. And of course, a special thanks to you, our beloved listeners, for downloading and subscribing to Uncommon Law. You're the best. Those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.